0: This is going to seem really off-topic, but have either of you guys watched uh, Freddy vs. Jason?
1: I have yes. Watched. I
0: have I've watched right. it
1: twice for some reason. <laughs>
0: Jesus, wow. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a sucker. <laughs> yeah, uh, I actually just rewatched it it, um, I don't know, like a week ago. I watched it in the theater when it first came out. I remember I was driving back with my brother, and uh, we got pulled <laughs> over, and the cop asked where we were coming from, and... I said, you know, from the theater, and he said, oh, what were you watching? And I said, Freddy vs. Jason, and we ended up just talking about the movie for like five minutes, and I got off without a ticket. <laughs> nice. But That's like uh, a
1: PBA card. I yeah, yeah.
0: Ner- ner- <laughs> yeah, exactly. If
1: only the, um, the Capital Riders had had done the same when they uh... – Rocco, well, that's such a good transition. Do you have a podcast?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. I've been known to that. I'm so
2: impressed with the professionalism.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, what I was going to say is uh, – all the ex about how all this is working is Freddie doing a monologue where he says he scoured the depths of hell and found Jason there, and that's it, right? That's all you get. So uh, wow. I, I, I scoured the depths of Jacobin, and I found the two most problematic people I could have to come on and talk about January 6th. <laughs> uh,
2: I'm not problematic at all. I'm a professor. Yeah. Also, people don't realize I'm a professor, and so they tell me to do things like – read introductory text to history. They're like, you should check out this guy Eric Hobsbawm. I'm like, oh, <laughs> interesting.
0: <laughs> Tell me more, yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I did take it out of my Twitter profile. That's probably why. But there we go.
0: <laughs> there you go. Uh, so uh, Bronco actually has two articles out about the anniversary of January 6th. Uh, one of them is uh, at our home, uh, journalistically Jacobin. It's called a year after the Capitol riot. Nothing useful has been done. And, uh, then there's one called how January 6th is being used to crush dissent on the left. Um, so, so this is interesting to me. I, I should say that Danny and I co-wrote an article not very long after the event itself. I don't remember exactly when that was, but that was like, that couldn't have been later than like February.
2: Yeah. Something along those lines. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I've, Maybe I've even thought January.
2: Of, I, I had a lot of thoughts that I felt the need to get out immediately. <laughs> without yeah. <any> Proper reflection. <laughs> Take a yeah, yeah. The internet
0: age. yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, yeah. It could have even been late January when the, the yeah, article came was, out. Yeah. Um, and you know it's kind of hard to remember because I think a lot of the things that we said in the article have become not all of them, but I think a lot of them have become less controversial since we said them uh, yeah because- I think
2: so i mean i didn't I, to be frank i there i don't think there was much controversial in the initial. In the initial text, um, I, I think it was interesting, and, and I think there, there is actually interesting work to be done on this, why the <laughs> debate about fascism got so heated, um, because it was really a, a debate about discourse. And I, I find that to be compelling. But I think when you if you remove yourself from the, that immediate context, the article is pretty, you know, I don't think makes any particularly novel or wild claims in a sense, you know, it's a classic left wing worry about who the state's going to actually oppress. Um,
0: yeah, right. Basically? Like, are they actually going to go, you know, <laughs> restrict themselves to going after the right uh, or or even primarily do that in the long run? Well, right,
2: uh, which is, like, obvious over history and over... I mean, leftists have made that argument for over 100 years at this point. It's not especially... Novel. It's just in the context it was taken in a particular way. Sorry, Bronco. Please.
1: Well, I was just going to say just to put a little praise in you guys. Uh, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't undercount that. It is a very simple and basic point um, that, in theory, is not controversial. However, in the wake of an event like that, that was the result or the the, the subject of so much I uh, think media fear mongering and, and propagandizing, uh, similar to how nine eleven was. Of course, it it, it does take genuine got to to say something like that even though in any other situation it's a very uncontroversial point that almost anyone can uh, at least anyone kind of you know liberal to left-leaning can can agree on and what was
2: and that's what surprised sorry ben i just want to say one no thing no, no go in for in
0: it
1: relation to that.
2: what surprised me i think about that whole issue was h- how there was some type of emotional investment in, in the symbols of american democracy that i <laughs> just didn't know was as deeply felt um because like i've just never felt that you know I, I, I and uh you know on an on that emotional level um but i guess people do you know I, I don't know maybe that's just by virtue of my particular background or reading in european history or whatnot but like we're taught to be so suspicious of national symbols i just didn't know that the capital had that emotional valence for people
0: yeah so so i saw uh a friend of ours who's uh, Lefty podcaster who might or might not want me to, uh, me to out him as the source of this quote sent me this quote from uh, Mike Davis who said yesterday's – so this was um, – obviously this was like January 7th, 2021. Um, yesterday's sacrilegious uh, – quote, <laughs> sacrilegious, unquote, in our temple of democracy, oh, poor defiled city on the hill, etc constitute insurrection only in the sense of dark comedy what was essentially a big biker gang uh, dressed as circus performers and war surplus barbarians to face... Yeah. To, ...for a coat. Stormed the ultimate country club, squatting in Pence's throne, chased senators into the sewers, casually picked their noses, and rifled flu, which was roughly the uh, the perspective... I think that we, that we had, right? So, and, and I think that, I, I guess the two things that i would, I would maybe say about this are, uh, I, I do agree that a lot of people on the left turned out to have a lot more sort of patriotic reference for those symbols than maybe we would have expected, and, and that was that fed into the Uh but, but then the other part, I, I think, was uh, this, this really strange claim about what was possible, right? So like the idea that a thousand conspiracy theorist boomers, um, you know, who I think Mike Davis is describing perfectly in that quote, were in any position to overthrow the most centralized, heavily armed, uh consolidated state, you know, in human history in some ways. Um you know, just seemed really bizarre to me. And, I, and one of the points I should say that, uh, that Bronco makes in his piece of Jacobin is that, you know, it's really easy to get this twisted. And so I think we should be clear here. The claim is not that it's not possible to imagine scenarios by which our weird half-democratic country gets significantly less democratic. It absolutely is. In fact, it, it takes very little, you know, imagination right now to get there. It's just that if that happens... It's not going to happen like this.
2: Yeah, sorry, Branko.
1: Oh, well, I completely agree. I mean, I think uh, there's been a lot of understandable panic around this event, and you know, I was I was horrified upon watching it as well. Uh, you know, I, I, I turn on the TV and I see this this just chaos happening and people storming the Capitol. It, it was scary initially. However, I think there's been a lot of. Um, uh, I guess mixing up of like what people feared the event actually was or could have been, and what it actually was, because once you actually look at you watch some of the video footage you, you look at the reports of the day, you you, know, you read all the all the mountains of reporting that was done uh, in its wake, it, you realize what this was most it was just a kind of incoherent uh, rabble of people who are very loyal to Trump who have been manipulated and lied to by the media that's pro-Trump that has kind of fed them this idea that that the election was stolen that that they have a duty to try and uh prevent the 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 destruction of democracy and and they charged in because of very poor and under-resourced security at the capitol which they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise and and frankly should not have been able to do um given the fact that that law enforcement was well aware that uh there was uh, you know, whether considered or whether just kind of a, a, a vague idea, there was a plan to kind of try and storm the Capitol and get in there. Um, yeah, Brock, correct was me if I'm to...
2: wrong, but weren't they posting in Facebook groups with titles like Civil War II? You know, like, it was like, and, and haven't, hasn't the government spent untold millions on developing, like, signals, intelligence, uh, gathering capabilities? So, like, they should have been able... They should have been aware of this one at the very least.
1: <laughs> yeah, and uh, because of some of the January sixth investigations that have been happening in Congress, and and because of just reporting as well that that uh, newspapers have been doing, we know for a fact that they had tons of warnings that they knew about it, and then they just sort of, for whatever reason, you know, it seems like it's an intelligence failure. But we we don't totally know. I think we don't have a satisfactory idea of, of what exactly. Uh, led to it, but it was a failure, and they didn't have enough people. Uh, they didn't have even equipment that worked properly, uh, and and you know all these this great mass of people was able to charge in. Now, you know, I, I think what's important to to note is that since then, you know, I'm going to quote the FBI director here. Uh, he himself said that the the people that went into the Capitol were a a uh, inverted pyramid. So there was there was some small amount of violent and possibly armed people at the very top of the pyramid, the, the smallest number. And then below that you have people who are kind of like swept up in the moment and decide, yeah, let's, let's charge into the capital. Didn't really know what to do after that. And then there were people who were just peaceful protesters. Um, no matter how stupid and, and reactionary their cause was, they, they were, they were protesting and they're at the very bottom of the pyramid. They were the, they were big, the biggest number. Um, and so I think, you know, I can understand the people's, panic about this or the alarm because there's a reason that we have metal detectors uh, in in federal buildings and we have armed guards because obviously if a maniac with a gun walks in there he can even if he'll be stopped pretty quickly he can do a lot of damage uh and and kill a lot of very important people so there's the alarm is understandable however that is not what really happened and i don't think that that was the event for at least the the you know 90 to 95 percent of the people that were there
2: so, Bronco, I have a question. Um, so, one of Ben and my initial predictions was that there would be a security state overreaction, uh, and I, only a year. It's kind of difficult because I don't think there was ever going to be like a Patriot Act. The trauma wasn't that much. But w- what have been developments on that front? Is there re- uh, reason to be concerned about that? And using January six as a an
1: excuse, or did we overblow that that worry? No, there's absolutely a reason to worry. Uh, I mean. They have not passed a domestic terrorism statute, which, if anyone can remember, it was only a few months before January 6th that, that uh, Trump wanted to declare Antifa a, a terrorist organization because of um, all the protests mm-hmm. that were happening about George Floyd's murder. Uh, uh, that he was not able to, and people kind of celebrating this at the time, they said, well, you know, this is just campaign rhetoric, it's just him talking uh because there is no domestic terrorism law that allows him to do this and thank god there isn't um and then after January sixth, before trump was even out of office this talk of reviving a a domestic terrorism statute and passing one uh became the big idea even though months earlier people had been had, had been talking about it so that has not been passed however there has been something that that uh, law enforcement officials and the, uh, the uh, Congress people have have talked about, and have discussed. I don't think it's off the table, and I don't think it's something that we should discount. Could happen if if the Republicans win uh, and, and retake Congress in in uh, this year in these elections. Uh, is Joe Biden going to sit there for two more years doing nothing but just sort of blocking bills? No, I mean you know Biden's going to try and look for something that he can work with the other side on uh austerity is one possibility i think a, a terrorism sta- anti-terrorism statute or at least some beefed up terrorism powers um are not off the table in that scenario uh if are if republican majorities and democrats are no, link, no longer there to to say well we're not going to do this because it's a bit dangerous um beyond that you know we've we've seen the the capital police have been uh now kind of turned into this quasi-national terrorist fighting force uh so now god, thank god <laughs> well, they did yeah. so
2: well the first time, you know, why not? Yeah, no, let's beef those guys up. And we've got a lot of surplus <laughs> Yeah, well, And
0: especially, I I mean, I think if there's one thing that we could agree on about the state of America in between 2001 and 2020, 2021, it's that we didn't have nearly enough uh, branches of the government and, you know, gov- organizations devoted to counterterrorism.
2: No, definitely not. I it hasn't should gonna... be given a counterterrorism outfit. And we should only walk around in public with one just to prevent all the violence <laughs> that could come our way.
1: Well, and so, yeah, Capitol Police are now – they have offices in Florida and California. They may expand uh, to further states uh, in, in, in the years ahead. Uh, the Capitol Police are uh, not quite completely free of, but they're they've, uh, pretty resistant to public oversight. They're very uh, opaque. Uh, you can't foyer them. Um, so, you know, that doesn't sound particularly good. Uh, at the same time, uh, the FBI director just last year, he said that, uh, terrorism cases have, have doubled, Now that's not because there's more terrorism. Um, terrorism has always been a very, very minor, uh, uh, type of violence. Uh, and also United just,
2: Franco, very quickly, I yeah. would point people to Lisa Stampnitsky's work on this. Who has like examined the development of terrorism studies? It's basically a semi-meaningless term um, that is used almost 100 percent of the time politically. <laughs> it's right. defin- defining a tactic, effectively.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you know that tactic, uh, uh, as some of the prosecutors have have defined it, uh, counts. You know the, the the basic things that both the Capitol rioters and the protesters and George Floyd were doing because in any any event like this there's always going to be whether it's with whether it's a lot of people or a tiny fraction of people that will be engaging in uh actions that may not be the most helpful you know they, they might throw things, throw projectiles, they might you know have some sort of makeshift weapons, so on and so forth uh There was a case this year pretty high profile case. Uh, the Biden administration has sought a, a terrorism sentencing enhancement for uh, two lawyers in Brooklyn who, during a protest in t- uh, 2020, threw a Molotov cocktail at a uh, police car and burned a town. And so, th- this kind of property destruction is now being counted as terrorism by the state. And, and that's what the majority of terrorism prosecutions in 2020 were as well. They were the George Floyd protests. So, any uh, massive increase as has happened of terrorism-fighting agents is going to lead to... It, it, sure, it'll get some of the right-wing people as well, but they will also get left-wing people who are engaging in protest and activism. Um, I, and, and I think I'll just say one more thing and I'll stop talking because I realize I've gone on for a while. Mm. The, the no, other major thing that I, uh, I've i tried to argue... Some people disagree with this, but I, I think it's, it's uh, clear there's a connection. Uh, this year, there were 88... Anti-protest bills that were uh, introduced in state houses across the country—that's um, far bigger than there were in 2020, far bigger than there were in, in 2019, uh, 2018, 2017. Now, of course, a lot of that is to do with Republican control of state houses, and it's to do with
0: yeah. So I was, uh, I was gonna, I, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask about this. Like, what, what's the partisan like lineup on this? Like, like, are you having more Democrats supporting these bills now?
1: Democrats are voting against them, um, which you know isn't necessarily all that relevant, depending on what state house you're in, because Republicans uh, mm. uh, won <laughs> tremendously in in 2020. Um, but uh, there was in Connecticut, for instance, one Democrat put forward an anti-protest bill, and he cited the um, uh, the, the Capitol riot as a reason for it. And and in Florida, I mean, the anti anti riot bill, quote unquote, that. On Sanders put forward, it failed in 2020. He put put it, uh, introduced it again in 2021. On January 6th, he he made the Capitol riot kind of the one of the chief sales points for the bill. Um, and what I would argue is that mm-hmm. even when Republicans aren't citing specifically the Capitol riot, the coverage of the riot uh, by basically repeating many of the Republican lines uh, uh about the 2020 protests you know playing up the the threat of property destruction vandalism the 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 threat the danger uh to police uh and so on and so forth all of these themes i think have created a general sense among people of this kind of like rising lawlessness and disorder and chaos and 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 protests are getting out of control that they have to be controlled through uh police action and so i think um even if Republicans don't always point to the Capitol riot that relentless media narrative I think has kind of helped to advance the cause of, of these you know, anti-riot bills
0: yeah so, so as um, as Danny mentioned this is one of the big things that we talked about in our piece because uh, we were trying to you know intervened in, in two debates, right? One it was about fascism analogies and one was about January sixth, which were at the time very closely uh linked, you know. I mean certainly it was my, my impression at the time that on like the online left uh it was it was just kind of the sacrosanct party line for a while there that uh, the, you know that you that like what this was was a near miss, uh, but that really is what a lot of people are expressing, and that they, they get very upset, you know, if you uh, if you said anything else. Uh, but you know, there, there were times since then when I went back and forth a little bit about how I felt about, you know, not the claims in the article because I, th- I think we were right about almost everything, but um, but sort of about bothering with it because thought, okay, well, if all that's going on here is that a bunch of right-wing lunatics are being you know like what a bunch of right-wing lunatics did was being misrepresented or exaggerated it's like all right you know on my list of priorities you know that's not necessarily at the top of them uh but there are a, a couple reasons that we mentioned in the piece why this might actually be an important thing to kind of stay on so uh, one is the one that's been mentioned. Bronco,
2: I actually have a question I want to ask yeah, you, go on. which is, so why do you think the, what you, you're like someone who's, who's in the left world very mm-hmm. much. So. so why do you think the, um, this had such a strong valence among certain segments of the left? Why do you think that even a year out, um, it's, it's still so important to people?
1: Well, look, I'll give, um, the kind of that side of things that you, because I, I don't think it's completely laughable to be to be worried about this i mean you know like i said it could have been that by storming the the capital that that you know people with weapons a lot more than there actually were in the day could have come in and and you know done all sorts of damage that could have happened you know there were uh pipe bombs left outside the dnc and the rnc offices um during the event uh we could also have had a similar uh, situation as as Bolivia, where um, it, an event like this happens, it 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 you know interrupts the 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 transfer of power. It causes some sort of crisis. There's a power vacuum. I mean, do you really happens. think it's like
2: Bolivia, though? I mean, it just doesn't seem like. If anything, the institutions have proven incredibly resilient. You know, if you if you look at what happened in light of COVID-19 and, and the almost total lack of protest in relation to what's actually going on in this country. It just seems to me mm. that there's very little to fear reasonably from sort of armed groups seizing the power of the state. It's just not how yeah. politics works in this country and never really how politics worked in this country. So I, yeah. it's,
1: that, that's well, why it but correct I, me. I don't, I don't think it is like Bolivia. And one of the key reasons it's not is because the, the military wasn't, on, on side for this. And whereas, it had never been.
2: And Trump spent no. four years insulting them and
1: uh, you know, exactly. had some exactly. like
2: military guys who he who humiliated and then yeah.
1: fired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think one of the reasons why it still uh, has, uh, I guess, looms in, in, in the left wing imagination so much is because it did look like something that people uh, imagined or feared was going to happen during Trump's, Trump's years, that, that sort of the, the great Unwashed but that was of Trump supporters. It you know, I mean,
2: in my opinion, that was always unreasonable. You know, sure. It,
1: it didn't happen. Um, sure. For one. Uh, but and that, then, sorry. Yes. Please. Well, but that's that's what it looked like, right? That's that's so, what it appeared. So this, and then you. you I think a lot of people also. Uh, there was a lot of like error, ridden coverage of the event to begin with that all as as often does yeah exactly and and it and it kind of leans towards it it airs on a side of sensationalism and and fear and and alarm and so uh i think there's a lot of people who haven't actually realized that things like the zip tie guy that that was you know that that he just picked him up there yes he picked him up off a off a cop um, okay, so this is what I think was ultimately one of the
2: reasons that I was frustrated with the fascism analogy, because I think what it does it's it's a reflective of some of the worst elements of our modern politics, which is basically making it into a passion play that is totally disconnected from any sort of strategic analysis of where power actually lies in this society. It's mm-hmm. pretending that it's this like hyper romantic moment of like anti fascism, and even though if that's what what anti fascism felt like in 1931, it's how it's remembered. The people who are talking about the fascism analogy are, are 99% of the time filtering that analogy through their remembrance of things like World War II films uh, and things <laughs> along those lines, right? So it plays into these, these worst, what I would almost say, anti-political romantic elements, which if anything, like a left, which is totally weak and totally out of power, has to be as hard-nosed as humanly possible about where power actually lies. Um, and so I think that's ultimately one of the reasons that I find the continued power of the analogy so frustrating. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, on that point, I think it's worth – people who were alarmed by January 6th, I think it's worth it uh, that they think about this fact, which is that the greatest threat to, I guess, democracy in the United States on that day I don't think was the protesters running in. I think it was the entirely legal, institutional uh, attempt by Republicans to basically deny Biden the victory and to overturn the results, which – um, ironically enough, were actually interrupted by the protest. And there's a case to be made that if those people had not um, actually stormed the Capitol, without even realizing it, of course, they thought they were, you know, they, were, they were doing it for Trump, but without them storing the Capitol, the Republicans would have dragged out the certification process, uh, turned the whole thing into a fiasco. Put pressure on Mike Pence to to uh, send the results back to the states. Um, basically, create a crisis of legitimacy, and who knows what would come after that. Uh, and this is basically Peter Navarro. I think
2: what would come after that—that that would have almost been—that would have been like a, a hyper sort of romantic moment, because I think the military would have prevented them from doing that.
1: Quite possibly.
2: Quite possibly. Yeah, and, I, and that's why causes... I think there was never. Um, the military would have been speaking to Republican politicians, you know,
1: which in itself is, you know, not a great. Uh, yeah, but that's not been a going great long or... the
2: forties, right? Well, so this is. Yeah, I mean, the Joint Chiefs of Staff have an incredible role in making U.S. foreign policy, which is, you know, already ridiculous. The military should have zero say uh, in what in what the U.S. does abroad, and so to me, and I think like. Another thing to add to that is like when, when I'm looking at the problems of democracy, I'm looking at the fact that we live in basically a state of delegated governance where already so many proper functions of government have been outsourced to essentially unelected bureaucrats or parastatal institutions like think tanks, you know? And so again, I think it's just focusing on this, these like hyper romantic moments as opposed to the actual structures that basically make America not a functioning democracy today. And in my opinion, in two important areas, foreign policy and macroeconomic policy, not a functioning democracy for almost 100 years at this point. So, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's just so frustrating that this is what becomes the focus of so many people.
1: Yeah, uh, but, you know, the, this is the thing that the big, big dramatic events, uh, especially ones that are uniquely suited to the 24-hour media ecosystem, uh, they tend to be the things that, that fire people's imaginations. And I think it's worth remembering that, that obviously, it, as – a, a much genuine alarm as I think there would have been uh, around this uh, no matter what. I think it is important to note how crucial the, the September 11th style media coverage of this was. I mean, it was relentless mm-hmm. for the first few weeks or a month. Uh, it, basically, no one's really stopped talking about January 6th since it happened, uh, at least in the media, I think, uh, among actual ordinary people. I think people don't care that much. Well,
2: that's what's ironic. The media is not connected. This is what's so interesting. We have essentially a media ecosystem that speaks to very particular people, you know, and that's just a fact of the neoliberalization of media itself and the telecommunications act of 96. And like, we all, we're all audience, we're we're all audiences of one in a sense. So that's, what's also a compelling story. It's on Twitter, but I, I don't think I've ever heard someone talk about it in my real life.
1: No, no. Aside from, you know, every now and then I talk to someone on the left who kind of expresses uh, skepticism that, that you know, it, it's deserving of the, the coverage it's getting. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really been pretty relentless. Of course, in the cable news shows, it's everywhere. But even newspapers and, and, and digital outlets, uh, uh, we talked about who was going to fill the Trump uh, ratings uh, hole, mm-hmm. you know, once he's gone. What's going to be the thing that can drive up clicks? And I think basically the Capitol riot uh, fulfilled that purpose. I mean, it's or been, try to. Been I think
2: haven't the ratings been been down big time? No, yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's worked, but it's the closest thing. Yeah, um, yeah, it's like correct me if I'm wrong, but all those like cable news, they're all they're all dying, right? Except Fox News, which is has a very uh, it's a much older viewership.
1: They're not doing well, which is why, uh, you know, the, the possibility of Trump winning in twenty twenty four is very real because it mm-hmm. would suit a lot of people, uh, including, you know, uh, the corporate liberal media ecosystem.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I guess uh, earlier, so so when my audio was was cutting out, uh, I was saying that the zip tie thing was even more ridiculous then I think you're uh for, you know, you're saying because my understanding is the guy didn't even get it from the, off a cop. Uh he actually got it off like a table where it had like been left by a cop. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know. But uh and all of this is not to say there weren't people who, you know, did violent things on the on the six or uh you know that, that it was uh it was entirely peaceful. It certainly wasn't. I mean it was a riot, uh although I do th- I I do think it's relevant that uh, the only person who was actually killed was one of the uh one of the rioters um the uh you know the, there was there was one there was the uh, there was uh there were cops who committed suicide of course cops have a very high suicide rate uh that's you know that's a uh you know i mean that's just a general fact wait hold on uh, i want about...
2: can we pause on that it seems strange yeah. that four cops committed suicide afterward or am i Am I JFK-brained because of the it's, last it's,
1: six weeks? Isn't it's that actually a pretty high
2: number at that yeah. high a rate?
1: A lot of cops kill themselves uh, because of uh, trauma. Um, and not even things that happen to them, but just seeing things and, uh, you know, uh, it leaves a mark.
2: No, it's, of course. But even at that high a rate so quickly after a particular event...
1: Well, I, I, you know, what people would say is that it was a very traumatic event for those who were there. And listen, I don't, I don't dispute that. I mean, I can imagine if, if I was a lawmaker or some, you know, a staffer, or whatever, a worker who was in there when that happened, it would have been terrifying because you don't know what the hell's going on. You don't know who these people are, or what, what they're trying to do. Um, so, I, 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 to be honest, that, that, it is kind of strange that that many people kill, kill themselves afterwards. But I'm not.
0: I mean, I, I
2: understand
1: much. that with the trauma, it's just the, the numbers seem awfully high.
0: Yeah, I mean the number is definitely high, uh, but um, but I think it is significant that other than that, right? Uh, the uh, other than the the cops who committed suicide and uh, Ashley Babbitt, who was who was shot by a cop, uh, the the January six deaths were uh, a couple of people who one guy had a drug overdose. And I think there was a there was a stroke. It's it's probably relevant here that. I mean, frankly, a lot of these people seem to be like older and spend a lot of time on their computers, so this is a lot of excitement for them. you know I don't want to be too <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to be too cavalier about the deaths of human beings here, but like it's it's a you know like like this is not this is not an impressive group um and and i think uh you know like they and then the the remaining case is uh is the is the cop who Initially, it was it was claimed that uh, that he he was like clubbed with a firehide, you know, with like a fire extinguisher. That was the initial thing. In fact, we reported that I believe in the uh, or you know we we included that in the in the Jacobin article, or we said something like died from his injuries uh, because that was just everywhere in the media at that time. Uh, I think that's the only thing that was straightforwardly factually wrong in our article. Although at least we're in, in you know we've got lots and lots and lots of company on there because that entire mainstream media was saying the same thing. Uh, but but I think that, you know, I think Bronco said this at the beginning of what he was saying, you know, it is a really important point that lots of people, I think, in the sort of, um, you know, lots of progressives, liberals, leftists, you know, people in in sort of the, you know, team blue in terms of uh, the culture war and media bubble still believe a lot of these things. Uh, and and are surprised when you pointed out, even though this has been, mm. you know, this has been totally like uh, a lot of this has been debunked since like February. And, and like when I say debunked, I don't mean like there's some alternative media thing that says, oh, this didn't happen. I'm completely withdrawn by mainstream media and, and, and not at all part of any sort of charging documents or anything like that. Um, and, and I think there is something that I mean, I struggle a little bit with how to approach that comes up with a lot of stories, which is that I don't I don't know. Did you guys read Hate Inc, the the Matt Taibbi book?
2: No, uh, but I know but...
0: of it. <laughs> <laughs> Broadco did you say you did, did or didn't
1: uh, I have only read parts of it, so yeah, I've oh. I read the uh the serialized bits that he put on this uh sub stack way back in the day.
0: Yeah. I I, mean, so I think whatever you think about uh you know Taibbi and, and some of his work since then, I I think it's a very good book. Uh and And I think it has what's essentially the correct, you know, materialist analysis of what's happened to media, which is just to say that traditional media has largely economically collapsed. And the result is that, you know, the profit incentives are to relentlessly pander to whatever little sub audience you still have left. And uh, and and you know keep them sort of whipped up and enraged, and as you're kind of saying, you know, I mean, Fox News is is definitely the best at this. You know, I mean, they kind of they kind of invented that marketing strategy, and they're still the ones who who do it most effectively. But it's essentially everybody's marketing strategy at this point. Well, what's
2: interesting is that like I remember there was a big piece in the American Economic Review a few years ago that actually like traced Fox News's impact. It's it it it. it from what i remember from that piece it makes a lot more money and is a lot more effective mm-hmm. at propagandizing which is actually quite interesting because like it it what's compelling to me about this moment is that it does seem like liberalism which has been hegemonic in this country since the cold war is losing uh for the first time in a really long time um in like a real way, which makes this moment actually, I think potentially really interesting. The problem is that the left is just so weak. And I think the liberal media is just not doing that well materially. Yeah. You know, well, no one really was, is buying what it's selling.
0: Sure. Yeah. And what I was going say, I think came up in aspects of the Kyle Lindenhouse case, um, you know, and, and comes up a lot, which is that if you are attuned to like media that roughly caters to, to, to the blue team, then you will believe like a bunch of stuff because it was, you know, it was, it was in, you know, it was like sensational at the time and, you know, and, and it fed into a certain narrative at the time. So it was really blown up when it first came up. And then when everybody realized it wasn't true, there was no particular incentives to spread it around. And of course, that's not unique to the blue team. I mean, the red team, as we just said, you know, like they, they invented it. They're still better at it. Uh, but but I think it does often put you in an awkward position if you want to be intellectually honest about this stuff, which is that, you know, you're, you know, you're sort of saying no – this didn't happen, that's not true, this didn't happen in a way that can like you get this sort of awkward gross feeling of agreeing with, you know, conservatives because they're the ones, you know, who are often pointed this out if it's about the sort of progressive media sphere bull- spheres bullshit. Uh, you know, which is not obviously to say they don't have their own, you know, more so. I mean, like, uh there's an absurd number of Republicans who believe that uh who still believe the election was stolen in, in the total absence of any of you know, evidence for that whatsoever.
2: Bank, I have a question about that. And you might be more sophisticated, sure. but like when those sorts of numbers are reported, like how do you, it just like as a historian, you know, it just seems like polling is, is such a crude tool. You know, like are people like that screwing with pollsters? Uh, is the question asked weirdly? Like it, it just seems patently absurd that so many people would believe that, but maybe I'm just naive and I'm trying to complicate something that's not
1: complicatable. I mean, I'll, I'll say I, I, think, I think it is true. I
0: don't know. I I, I'm, because, inclined to, I'm inclined to believe uh, it. I
1: politics and, and the media ecosystem in the United States has developed into this sphere of kind of competing realities where, you, you know, you, if, you, if you read or only uh, watch conservative media, right-wing media, uh, there are certain... Uh, facts and narratives that you have to buy into no matter what. And it's the same thing on the liberal side. I mean, I've talked to, to people who are, you know, who are, who are liberals, Democrat voting liberals, nice people, um, but they believe a whole bunch of stuff that just isn't true because they've... Like a Russia, the basically. Yeah, Russia, gave it, exactly. I mean, some of the stuff on January 6th as well. A lot of stuff like that. And so that's the thing. It's like, you know, it, because of the the, the, the cultural polarization that, that's happened, it's basically just organized itself not any sort of actual productive political uh, uh, formation, but just as a kind of two two, uh, cheerleading squads for two different bankrupt and corrupt parties, uh, we have, yeah, large groups of people who just believe um, two contrasting but equally stupid narratives of anything that happens. That's interesting. I wish there was a
2: way to measure quality of opinion as well, um, Mm. because, you know, I, I... I think polling is less useful in moments of transition. I think during moments mm-hmm. of stability, it's actually quite useful when status quo ideologies aren't aren't in such flux. But I guess that's asking too much of social science. But we, as a society, <laughs> had too much of social science. So there you go. That
0: might be. I think that might be hard. But I, I actually I actually want to stay on the point about you know Republicans believing the election was stolen for a minute because. I think it does also go to uh, – in some ways it gets us back to the debate about fascism analogies because I saw a lot of people say and, – and, Daddy, you probably remember this better than I do because you're more familiar with the history they were referring to. But, like, at the time, I saw a lot of people, including some people, uh, you know, like what's, what's his name, Paxton, you know, who who – you know, know a lot, you know, about the history of fascism saying, aha, this is just like, was it when the French parliament was stormed in 1934 or whatever? Um, And, uh, and and it just seems like a really obvious and important disanalogy. And this doesn't go to like making like Trump any less anti-democratic, but I I think it is really important. disanalogy is that Everybody who was like storming, you know, the French Parliament, whatever that year that was, understood that their goal was to end parliamentary democracy. Right? Like that that that's that is how they understood what they were doing, that they were they were there to, you know, impose fascism. Uh and and everybody involved in, you know, whatever, the March on Rome or, you know, in uh you know supporting Hitler or whatever understood uh understood the equivalent. Whereas uh the uh, you know the idiots who who stormed the Capitol on January sixth, in their minds, and that's not to say that there weren't actual fascists who were there because there were, but like in their minds, uh, what they what they were doing was the opposite of that, right? In their minds, what they were doing was like stopping a coup and. You know, mm. Yeah, everyone's a,
2: everyone's a liberal Democrat now in this country. <laughs> it's just it's just whose democracy is going to be followed. Yeah, I mean, I think that gets to the quality of the riot, um, and it's 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 an interesting question as to how meaningful that is in, in terms of assessing it. Um, I think it it shows that like um, in some sense it, 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 there's there's no like breakthrough position. You know, like fascism promised something different and socialism promised something different. But this is basically revanchist in a sense, emerging from the Tea Party, uh, where you're returning uh, the country to its supposed roots, Um, which obviously there is an element of that in fascism as well. But I think like it just doesn't seem like a vigorous movement in a sense, like it doesn't seem vital because it doesn't speak to new realities. Um, But I I might be wrong there.
1: I mean, I, I do wish that there was more of a uh, discussion or focus on, on like, what is it that led people to believe this profound piece of bullshit about the election? What is it that, that led people to not just believe it so fervently, they, they would travel all the way to DC, but that they would actually think, I'm going to storm into the Capitol and try and prevent this from happening. Why, why did, it's, it's not a good thing uh for uh, even if it was only a a few hundred people for that few hundred people to 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 believe in something that is so self-evidently false and like that is a discussion obviously there's been some talk of fox news and 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 right-wing media but largely i think that kind of core root issue has has been um avoided and and you know i i think it is significant uh people kind of don't really want to talk about this because it feels like you're people i think feel like they're justifying the the riders, but the, the numerous amounts of analysis of the people who are arrested on the day have found that they had financial issues so bankruptcies uh evictions uh foreclosures debts so on and so forth uh there was one study um that 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 looked at where the all these different people came from, they tend to come from, from Biden voting counties that actually had higher unemployment rates than the uh, national average. And actually, they had a higher unemployment rate overall than the national average at the time, which is about 6.2%, I think. Um, now, obviously, there were people in, in that crowd who were not financially struggling, who were wealthy or you know, uh, do, doing at least pretty well for themselves and who were not motivated or had anything uh, uh, kind of playing into their delusions that had to do with economics. But I think it is important that there was a, a significant cohort of these people similar to to the demographics that voted for Trump. Yes, there were the rich people in the typical Republican base, but there were also people who um, had become disillusioned. And, yeah, they're black-pilled.
2: They're just black yeah. in a
1: different way. You know, and, and uh, That's, that's believe, a lot of it. And I think the other thing that people – uh, need to understand is that that a the media is really hated <laughs> in this country in the united states but also it, it's it's deeply mistrusted and the media did trump a very big favor by going after him in the in the really dishonest and hacky way they did for years uh until the the Mueller report basically put all the all the russiagate stuff to bed and people saw that and i think you know it gave people a sense of oh well this guy he was telling the truth. There really are after him. You know, there's this one statistic from uh, uh, an American University survey of, of young black Americans um, uh, in advance of the election. It was done in 2020. One of the results they found was that even though uh, young black Americans were overwhelmingly for Biden, um, uh, when they read the statement, quote, I do not always like President Trump's policies, but I like the way President Trump shows strength and defies the establishment. Thirty-five percent of people who are eighteen to twenty-nine years old um, uh, agreed with that, and and forty percent of people who are thirty to forty-four agree with it. Now, this is this is a a demographic demographic that's overwhelmingly for Biden. But one of the things they liked about Trump was that he seemed to be fighting the establishment, even though he wasn't, of course. Yeah, because no one believes. I mean, no no one believes it. And the Capitol riot was a morbid
2: symptom in the classic sense. That's I Mm. mean, it's everything's so delegitimized. You know, there's a reason there weren't many of these types of things during the Cold War. There was a status quo policy and people were doing relatively well. I mean, this is this is a a symptom of, of some form of transition, not necessarily collapse, because I, I don't think capitalism is especially weak. But I think there is a transition right now um, that, that this is reflective of. And the, the problem is, is that it might go in. Uh, I think that it, it, there's a very good chance it'll go in a dark direction, but it won't be the same dark direction that we saw under Hitler you know, it'll be in a, a particular 21st century of of darkness that we don't even know what sort of hell it will unleash.
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll all just be sitting on our couches watching the Capitol riot from our TVs. For yeah. no, Matthew, Matthew McConaughey, President McConaughey, throwing <laughs> no, people
2: into uh, the prison camps.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's our future. Or President Rock, President uh, Dwayne the Rock yes. Johnson. Yes, they already made a show about that. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. Uh, I, I cut you off.
0: Uh, so I was just going to say, uh, if anybody wants to uh, to, to call in, uh, you know, we're we're happy to to take some calls. Uh, oh yeah, do people talk what... to
2: us? So Ben, I've got about ten more minutes. So okay, okay. So...
0: All, all, all right. If, if if you want to challenge Danny, you've got ten minutes to do it. So yeah, uh, I, so I, if... I
2: I wasn't curious. So this is like a call-in app. People call into us.
0: Yes, yes. People can call into us if they so they can uh, call they in and yell to... at me. Opt, opt, yes, there there is a possibility that we could yeah. get people in, you know, yelling at you. Uh, it could be that nobody's inclined to, but if if anybody wants to, you know, they certainly have my blessing. Uh, so, someone someone <laughs> should do
2: a Baba Booey call. Do do you remember <laughs> Baba Booey, Ben? Bo? We should bring uh, that maybe, back in twenty twenty two. Oh, all the kids listening, look up Baba Booey. <laughs> Yeah, do we have to? Exactly. Okay, hold Is on. We, we, we do it?
0: need to have a call. Give me a second.
2: Oh, oh. hell yeah!
0: <laughs> Maybe we also give relationship
2: Mike advice. No. If you guys want to be, I can, <laughs> we could give relationship advice too.
0: Yeah, That's we why before.
2: I did this off-topic
1: discussion as well.
0: All right, Antonio, do you do you need any relationship advice from Danny? Oh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I can't think of anything
2: funny to say in the moment. So. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> I did actually want to ask because I I don't wasn't aware of what fascism analogies were were done, but I do, I mean I do wonder if there's some validity to just the, um, well, to a, a, at least a far right label, if not like you know a little bit of a a little bit of a parallel between the Tea Party and the Trump uh, movements and fascism, in as much as you know fascism usually you know when. Uh, the, the like, you know, it's capital's insurance policy in case, you know, the, the crisis of capitalism, you you can, you have a reaction to its failures that is primarily social. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think like the, the reason that I, I, I think there's there's an approach to the fascism analogy that I call basically the checklist approach where, you know, if you see X things that meet a particular checklist, it's fascism. Um, And I I don't think that's a particularly fruitful way to understand contemporary politics. That might be a useful thing for scholars, you know, examining discrete historical moments and making fine distinctions between political movements. But I I think what was most important about the fascism analogy was less like this is like, you know, 40 percent like fascism and 38 percent like whatever, liberalism or what have you. Um, what, I think you have to see the valence of the term as it's used in historical time and present historical time. Um, and I think the way that people were using the fascist analogy w- w- was was uh, to equate Trump with um, or the Trumpist movement with Nazis. And I, I think for historical reasons, that's a problematic thing to do. So I, I generally try to shy away from, you know, the checklist approach to the question.
0: Yeah, I, I, sh- I was also gonna add to that, um, you know, I think Antonio very perceptively said that fascism is capital's insurance policy at times of of crisis. But I I mean, in some ways I I actually think it's, it's bleaker that they don't need to use that insurance policy, right? That, uh, yeah. Capitalism
2: is one now.
0: Yeah. I mean, like historically, you know, fascism is something that has been resorted to by capital, uh, when it seemed, you know, when it seemed like the alternative was socialist revolution, uh, because, you know, it kind of has to be that for them to resort to it because otherwise, you know, don't, you know, like that's the last thing you want to do. It's very destabilizing, um, you know, chaotic, like, like, you know, even though it promises order, right? I mean, like it, it's, uh, I mean, it's kind of a dangerous um, gamble in some ways for, for capital to, uh, to empower fascists. Uh, and, and I think they've only done it, you know, when they're afraid of, of losing everything. Um
2: and when you they know, had no choice, in a sense, you
0: know. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, because they were they were worried about like, a sort of rising tide of, of workers' revolution and. Exactly, in the United States, and they were not
2: forced, a- forced to do it. <laughs> like yeah. I think that's really crucial.
0: Yeah. No, exactly, exactly right. That they felt it was that or lose everything from their perspective, and I think in, in the United States, not only do we not have a rising tide of workers' revolution, we have like a six point seven percent rate of private sector unionization.
2: Yeah, so there's nothing precisely, precisely there to, to latch on to. And again, that was a particular historical response at a particular historical moment. I think what, whatever sort of um, alignments and formations we'll see going forward won't really echo that. You know, the sort of mass political formations of the 20s and the 30s in response to major, like the first, truly worldwide crisis of capitalism i guess you could say 1873 but i'm going to go with 1929 uh and then also you know the scar generation of war of, of war veterans you know it was a perfect maelstrom of horror and our conditions are just so different that whatever we get will look different
0: yeah I, i'd also say uh that are, there are there? going to be you know if you are going to do that checklist approach you're always going to find stuff i think on the checklist for for any kind of uh, right-wing movement which is why there there is this this long history i mean of um of people on the uh on the left um you know applying the fascism label to to sort of whatever the conservative impulse of the moment was uh so there's an old essay by hal draper from i want to say like 1968 uh, where he's he's talking about arguing with somebody who said he had to support Humphrey because Nixon was a fascist, uh, and and he he sort of says you know this is always you know even in 1968 he sort of said you know this this always comes up and and I don't want to make too light of this because I I think the people who make these analogies are often latching on to real things, but I think that it's I I guess my sense is that those real things are because okay. often about uh, rhetoric. And and I think that a lot of the it is that yeah there are certain kinds of God and family and country you know disturbing appeals you get from a variety of right wing movements. But I think that that's because they those just have very deep roots in conservatism. You know that that um, that actually predate fascism. That the, the you know fascist Nazis themselves were drawing on that well,
2: right. And and I think it's the peculiar. Connotation of the 20s and the 30s that gives you that particular form. You know, I, I think in the 1880s United States it looked different. In the 1960s U.S. it looked different. In the 2020s U.S. it'll it'll look different. Um, but I understand it's useful as a rhetorical cudgel because mm. World War II looms so large in the American imagination because it's the last time the U.S. could unabashedly point to a war that is. Presented as totally capital G good, so I mean I get it, but I think it's been used by people who actually hold power in kind of nefarious ways.
0: Yeah, yeah and, and I, I, think, I think, think we could think, also oh, Branko, please. Yeah,
1: I was just going to say I tend to think that if if uh, some sort of um, you know authoritarian or despotic regime would come to the United States, I don't think it would really look like Hitler's. Uh, but but you know if you look at uh, countries like Russia or say Hungary, I think that's a A better analogy there's like there's a a kind of patina of um of of the i guess uh constitutional order everything's justified on the basis of law and everything but of course everything is incredibly corrupt it's all controlled by big money and uh there's a faction of people at the top that are really basically controlling everything and i think and and uh, and also
2: in both of those countries they had organizations that explicitly modeled fascist organization i it's a different totally different history you know
1: what, you mean? What,
2: hold on. In in like Ukraine and Russia, there were organizations oh, sure, sure. dating back decades that explicitly sure. modeled themselves on the, the, the you know the the cadre formation of fascism. You know, it's a particular way to organize yourself politically. Um, which in the United States there were authoritarian and right wing movements, but I think they organized differently.
0: Yeah, I, I, about like. I don't know, like Berlusconi, maybe, but obviously you know, it's a country with a tradition of fashions and it's the one that gave us the name. But uh, but, but it, it does seem like that's an example of a, a sort of uh, something like a kind of light right wing strongman model that is very different from, from uh, probably some of those other cases.
2: Yeah, I also think Trump is personally most similar to Berlusconi, both in affect, view of the world, and background. Um, But Italy is just such, again, a a country with a weak state, you know, much poorer, um, very, very different history, uh, particularly its relationship to Europe. So, yeah, these things, these comparisons fall apart pretty quickly. Well, we
1: can look at at what Trump Uh, was planning – to, to, to do, which you know, mm-hmm. there were there were uh, indications before the election that, that their plans, should they win, were basically to try and uh, replace civil servants en mass, get rid of people in um, top positions of, of you know the military or intelligence, uh, maneuver people into uh, prosecutorial offices, that kind of thing. So you know, it, it wouldn't necessarily be a um, it wouldn't be a Hitler like state what they were planning. It wouldn't be as if Trump could just suddenly control everything and just sort of snap his fingers and whatever he wanted would be done. But it did mean that he would have a substantial amount of control of the the vast, vast uh, and, and very repressive uh, American state that he could use for any number of things. I mean, actually, to be honest, I mean, look, Trump's not even in power and we're already seeing uh, this kind of, of authoritarianism Popping up all over the country. I mean, that's that's the the protest laws that have been passed over the uh, right this year and the past few years. I mean, those are completely done legally. Of course, they're completely unconstitutional, but that no one had to do a coup to, to make them happen. They were uh, they were passed. You know, they went through through co- corporate lobbyists and and, and, and right wing think tanks and as you know, it should you know, <laughs> as the
2: as, order, yeah. as as we're told. That's, us, that, that, we're that's told why I mentioned that. the Tea Party. That's democracy, right. baby. I mean, this is the problem, right? It's the whole structure is so anti-democratic already.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, I, I would also add. I mean, it's 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 not it's not on the same level as like laws to make it legal to run over protesters with your car. You know, I mean, that's definitely <laughs> the the creep the creepiest iteration. Uh, you know, but but I would also add the uh, the crt bills to that. You know, like as, oh yeah, as a, for sure. You know, yeah, um, which which i actually think i mean this is a tangent that we don't necessarily need to get into but i would just say very briefly that you know it's something i've been thinking about a lot lately And one reason i'm I'm kind of frustrated by uh leftists who sort of do this weird liberal culture war thing where they minimize the importance of free speech it's like come on guys this is uh you know we, we should you know like we should be talking about this constantly right you know that there's that like um that the anti-CRT stuff is a huge assault on on free speech and the open discussion of controversial ideas, uh, and and that should really be our our cause, right? You know. Uh, yes, absolutely. And uh, at, at a, yeah, and I would say one way to connect. Oh. Bronca please
1: oh, I was just going to very quickly jump in that, that basically the right has has uh, very annoyingly claimed both the mantle of free speech and the mantle of anti authoritarianism by which they mean opposing like vaccine mandates and, and pandemic restrictions where in reality they 're the most uh, anti uh, uh, speech, anti anti speech, authoritarian faction in the United States, and you know the the liberal and left response should not be um, well. Actually, free speech doesn't exist, and it's bad anyway. Um, it should be no, you're you're <laughs> anti free speech.
0: Yeah, no, exactly, right. I mean, and, 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 and I think we should be talking. Like, I think there are a lot of reasons why it would make sense for the left to to. Talk a lot more about free speech than we do, from the anti CRT laws to the protest bills to, uh, to like you know, making yeah. it easier to, to, mm-hmm. yeah, to the anti BDS laws. Jesus Christ, yeah, good point. Uh, to, uh, to, to, to even just sort of like mundane sort of capitalism from day to day. you did out. Side of incredibly narrow parameters that you're allowed to do that. Oh no, did I cut out?
2: Uh, no, okay. No. okay.
0: Uh, all I was going to say is, is uh, you know, from all those examples and the one you mentioned with the BDS laws uh, to something as mundane as just like our incredibly shitty labor laws that make it harder to, um, for, you know, to, to for workers to share information and and help each other find out about unions, uh, but. Um, yeah. And, and I think in, in some ways this does take us full circle to the question you asked Bronco at the beginning, uh, because the the aspect of our article that I've been the least sure about in the last year, and you can find places, you know, where I'm on YouTube or whatever, where I'm I'm talking to somebody about this, and I say, well, maybe we weren't right about this, maybe this was overstated, uh, is exactly the one you identified about the expansion and security state. And I think as Bronco indicated, the jury is not entirely out on that yet. You know, I I think the January sixth committee has called for, you know, uh enhanced intelligence gathering powers uh I and and you know certainly there's the expansion of the Capitol Police, but there's also the private sector um increase in censorship that I think is is worth talking about, you know, that is directly fallout from from the Capitol riot that um i I mean it's one very small example you know and it's a relatively trivial example but uh the the stream uh that that I did with with uh, with Derek varn and Jean Bajelon and a few other people at g t a a uh on january sixth uh was was taken down because youtube was uh, was doing such a crazy purge of anything related to that, and even though obviously nobody out there was even pro-Trump, never mind you <laughs> know pro-riot, uh, you know it was it was still you know it was still taken down, and and I think that I think the the state of online free speech, which was already not great, has definitely gotten worse.
1: Well, which is good because um, we we can use these tools to uh, to to stop any future right wing coup, right? uh sarcasm obviously <laughs> uh
2: no, no, no thank it's totally god good. guys i actually have to go i have to sorry on all, all note,
0: right yeah all right <laughs> thank you thanks. so
2: much ben for having me on and bronco thank you as always good to see you i'll see you guys in the group chat and thank you everyone all for right. listening bye
0: all right pleasure. thanks danny uh okay yeah bronco if you could stick around for a few more minutes it does look yeah. like we have another caller all right awesome
1: is there anyone out there who uh disagrees with any of our, our takes on this i mean is there is there anyone who who thinks that we're maybe minimizing um uh an, an event uh that, that could have that you know that that was justifiably kind of treated as uh the the, the right. biggest thing of, of the last year
0: well possibly michael uh you want to unmute yourself <laughs> and uh, tell us what you of your mind
3: um sure yeah i, I actually i uh, i had thought about going away because i kind of wanted to ask danny a question about history but then i thought well i'll just come back and you guys probably know a lot about history too um but basically you know i I was kind of wondering um i think that a lot of times the analogy to, to to fascism is is meant to invoke or raise the specter of uh something like um, you know, the Holocaust being possible, and you know, in this in this country, and I think a lot of times that is, um, you know, kind of ahistoricized. And so I guess what I was going to ask Danny is, is uh, you know, how much uh, the specific outcome of the Holocaust uh is is necessary from something like fascism. Um, Because as I understand it, that that is also um, an event that that intersects pretty heavily with uh, Germany's specific um, uh, imperial pretensions Mm -hmm. uh, with respect to Eastern Europe at the time. Um, You know, and and I guess, you know. I realize that's a, that's a sensitive question. I was going to ask it of a historian, uh, especially a historian of the period. Um, because I realized that's, you know, uh, that could be a very discreet, um, historical issue, but uh, if you guys yeah. have any thoughts on that.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give it a shot. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to claim to be able to give as good a response as, as Danny could in this, but I mean, I think the the analogy with fascism uh, and and the idea that the Holocaust happened, of course, that could happen with with any modern state, especially one, uh, oh, uh, especially one with a, a government kind of the size and, and power of the of the U.S. federal government. And you know, I wouldn't rule anything out with the American right. The American right is particularly uh, extreme uh, and paranoid. And has a real uh, victim complex um, that it, it sort of uses to justify all manner of, kind of repressive authoritarian measures. Um, so I, I would not rule that out, of course. But, you know, I think when people typically think of uh, a kind of genocidal type measure in the context of the U.S., uh, they, they tend to think of... Um, the U.S.'s uh, anti-immigration system. Uh, (laughs) I guess people call it the immigration system. It's really the anti-immigration system, the the deportation machine that has been in place for ages. And that was not something that that one kind of uh, uh, handover power created. That's been in the works for uh, decades. And, And, of course, as we all know, Biden hasn't actually really... Reverse much of anything um, that, mm-hmm. that, that Trump was carrying on, uh, so the the kind of main i guess focus of people during the Trump years uh, for what they thought was kind of the uh, incipient fascism or, or kind of fascist state that would come to be, which was the the, the immigration policies uh, that preceded Trump and it it survives past him uh, it 's much deeper than Trump. And so I think if people are worried about that stuff, I think, you know, looking at just the victory of, of one guy in, in, in the president's office is not really um the, the big issue. This is a, a much deeper, deeper issue. And you could say the same thing about a whole bunch of repressive uh, powers. You know, the, the, the war on terror stuff which has just been ramping up and ramping up and ramping up, that uh happened under Bush but then Obama escalated it. Trump uh took it further and you know it looks like Biden's doing it now as a sort of uh, uh on the basis that's kind of like a, a stopgap against um authoritarianism, even though it's you know it's exactly what any budding authoritarian would want to have um once they took power.
3: Yeah, I mean just to interject, I mean it really does seem like just the you know the straight analogies to to fascist um you know, politics was seemed to me to be so much more evident in the Bush administration than mm. uh, than even in Trump. Although, obviously, whipping up you know uh, you know racial resentment all across the country is something that you know we I guess we maybe didn't see with Bush, except that all of the uh, media apparatus did it right after 9/11 yeah, I'll, to, i would also to an say, even greater degree. Yeah,
0: yeah, I would also say with Bush like you because know, people will sort of do this um you know this little party game, you know uh whether about whether Bush or Trump was worse, you know and uh uh and i I do think that I do think that Bush objectively did far more damage, but like I think the sort of ultimate argument for that is uh that I don't think you could have had Trump if not for Bush, because uh so much of trump's initial pitch in two thousand and sixteen was about fear of Muslims, you know that remember. Uh, I mean, in, in some ways, it's actually hard to remember exactly how extreme his 2016 campaign was, because uh, mm-hmm. in some ways he he governed like a normal Republican, just much more incoherent and incompetent. Uh, but in 2016, I mean, he repeatedly promised that he was going to uh, cut off all, like you know, ban all Muslims from entering the United States, and uh, and that kind of demagoguery about that I think is something that we could not have had. Or it wouldn't have been anything like as effective, and there wouldn't it wouldn't have been any much, anywhere near as much of a sympathetic audience for it if not for the way that bush responded to nine eleven not as a police matter but as as like elevated it to the level of this like civilizational threat like World War two or the cold war
1: yeah, and it wouldn't have happened without a host of uh kind of pre trump republicans who i mean islamophobia Uh, It it did not suddenly become mainstream in the Republican Party just when Trump won. It's it's been a pretty core uh, thing, as has uh, anti-immigrant politics. I mean, Trump just kind of uh, seized on it because in in his run, he thought, well, I'm just going to, you know, I I can see what plays with this crowd. If I say the most extreme thing um, about whatever issue that they care about, that'll be the thing that, that gets them going. Um, and that's how you get things to like the Muslim ban. Um, but all of this stuff was in place uh, long before Trump showed up. Um, so and, and one of the <laughs> infuriating things for me uh, running over the past, you know, four or five years, whatever, is um, as soon as Trump came, became president, uh, the narrative has always been, you know, my, you know, my God, with, with, what a contrast he is from the, the, the reasonable good Republicans of the past. And you're still seeing that with, with Bob Dole. Um, the coverage around Bob Dole, who uh, you know did as much as anyone to to basically prefigure Trumpism, um, and and there's this kind of desire, I guess, to want to believe that that everything kind of broke with Trump, yeah. but really Trump was just a
0: long throughout Watergate, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, he he pioneered the the obstructionism of Mitch McConnell. He was the the really the first guy to do it, um, and, and you could go down the list. with, I mean, George H. W. Bush. George W. Bush, of course, Reagan. Uh, people, uh, you know, Reagan has been turned this sainted figure, but of course, Reagan was very racist and uh, was not shy about, um, you know, doing a little wink and a nod to out and out white supremacists uh, if he thought it was going to help him. So Trump is just kind of the logical endpoint of this. And so, you know, it's. Um, uh, I, what's the conclusion? I guess it's too bad that there was shitty security and uh, at the Capitol uh, last year.
0: <laughs> <and Jerry. laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I mean, I, I think I think that's actually when Atticus Berry was on the the show not very long after that. I, th- I think that's one of the things we landed on that like the biggest scandal here is just the shitty security at the Capitol because <laughs> if not for that, right? I mean, there's no way that these people would have been able to get anywhere near there. I mean, they uh, like this is you know, I mean, honestly, they. At least the group. of, I mean, I know the original rally was much larger, but at least the group of protesters who who end up storming the Capitol. I mean, that's not even a big protest, uh, and and they didn't shoot their way in. You know, I mean, they they just they just kind of, uh, you know, in some cases were let in, in some cases kind of burst past barricades. Uh, but but really, I think that the sort of Capitol police fuck up is the uh, is the biggest issue there and i think one of the many reasons that it's unfortunate that that happened um you know besides the fact that again there was genuinely violent things that happened and and i agree with you what you said at the beginning of the episode about how you know i think it was legitimately very traumatic you know for a lot of people uh who were who were there uh who didn't know what was going to happen uh but but i think in a larger scale sense like i think one of the things that's most unfortunate about it is that it i think gives people an entirely inaccurate idea of where threats of authoritarianism come from uh because you know so much of the horror about January 6th was about the sort of national symbols being defiled and and the sort of violation of the state you know but but really i mean the the really disturbing and authoritarian things about trump you know were the sort of uh you know like the immigration enforcement uh and which as you say you know uh you know trump just escalated it uh and and, and you know, so, I mean, it, it, it just seems like maybe to bring us back to horror movies where we started, you know, if you're worried about authoritarianism, you know, the call is coming from inside the house. Right. And the
1: institutions are themselves the problem, uh, as as people on the left have said a million times uh, during the Trump years and beyond. Um, and so, you know, it, it's not a coincidence that Republicans see that the greatest uh, hope for Overturning a uh, a future election, uh, not to, to be honest. At this point, I think they even need to to, to win in twenty twenty four. Unfortunately, but uh,
0: not.
1: I I think uh, it's not a coincidence that they see that the greatest hope for doing that and just basically uh, finding these these openings in the the the, the veto ridden U um, S. political system that's so easy to exploit. Uh, and but you know, there, there's no real appetite to to overhaul. Political institutions in the United States at all among among liberals. That's sort of just been kind of, uh, I don't know, it's been given up, it seems like in the Trump years. The ideas now that, uh, um, I mean, yeah, people complain about the election, uh, the electoral college, but beyond that, uh, it seems like people are sort of fine with things the way they are.
3: Well, thanks for taking my call. I
0: really appreciate it. Uh, Left is best. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Antonio. Thank you. for By the way, people should read Broncos uh, obituary, uh, <laughs> if you can call it that, of, uh, of Bob Dole and uh, <laughs> Jack. And then, uh, the only which accurate, is, uh, which reading. is very good.
1: Yeah, uh, the, the, not the not the two of My own. Yeah,
0: yeah, no. no. I,
1: I just it's funny like reading other people's obituaries of of someone and being like, wow, this is just none of this is true. Or uh, <laughs> well, like well, that, that's a whole <laughs> chunk of his life just left out.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. My my younger brother has a standard joke when I tell him I've written an article for Jacobin um, that uh, they that it's you know it's the uh, Ben Burgess article generator that it's either going to be nationalized fill in the blank or um, here here's why this person who just died is terrible. <laughs> uh, <which> I, <laughs> well, yeah, that's like actually percent
1: of the of our of our output at Jacobin. So you know, yeah, you're, you're doing good work. <laughs> I'm
0: joking. Fair it. enough. <laughs> no, it, it, it is not even seventy percent of my my outcome. I've only done the I've only done the second category a couple times, uh, but the um, but but Broncos' contribution to uh, to that category with Bob Dole was very uh, uh, was very good. You'll certainly learn more about him than you you would from any mainstream media obituary. But uh, we should probably wrap it up there. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for coming on and for uh, for sticking out so long.
1: Yeah, no worries. Uh it was it was an interesting conversation, uh, as always. And thanks to all the callers as, as well.
0: Yes. Uh calls uh calls were great. Um I and uh and yeah, I'm glad that you and uh you and Danny were on to, uh when I was having all of my technical issues. <laughs> uh so uh the uh the show could go on. But uh but thanks everybody for uh for listening. Left is best.